Our scripture lesson for this morning is uh, taken from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. My brothers, I could not talk to you at first as to people who have the Spirit of God, but I talk to you as people who have the Spirit of this world. I talk to you as people who are very newborn baby Christians. I gave you milk to drink, not food to eat. You were not ready for food. Even now you're not ready for it. You still have the spirit of this world in you. You are jealous of each other and you are quarreling. The spirit of this world is still in you and you live like people of this world. One says, I belong to Paul. Another, I belong to Apollos. Do you, does that not show that you have the spirit of this world? After all, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We both work for God. You believe because of the work we did. The Lord gave each of us our work to do. I planted the seed, Apollos put water on the seed, but God made the seed grow. So the man who plants is nothing and the man who waters is nothing. God alone makes the seed grow. The man who plants and the man who waters are equal. Each will be paid for his own work. I built the lower walls of God's house because God showed me the best way to do it. Now another man builds on top of this foundation. Each man must take care how he builds on it. Jesus Christ himself is the foundation. No one can make another one. People build with gold, silver, and fine stones, wood, grass, or straw on top of the foundation. But the day will come when everyone's work can be seen. Their work will be tested by fire, and the fire will show what kind of work each one did. You know that you are God's house. The Spirit of God lives in you. God will punish anyone who spoils his house. His house is holy, and you are his house. Do not be fooled. If any one of you thinks he is wise in the things of the world, he should count himself as not being wise. So do not be proud of men. Everything belongs to you. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, the things which are now and the things which are to come. Everything is yours. For you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. I uh, didn't really pick this scripture for my message this morning. It was picked for me by a book that a lot of churches use called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a list of scriptures that uh, guarantee that a church will uh, cover the main doctrines and the main uh, scriptures uh, on a three-year rotating basis. And this is the scripture that just came up for this for this month. It's. Not one that I probably would have picked because, quite frankly, this passage steps on my toes a little bit. Maybe it'll step on yours. Uh, there was an alternate one I could have picked, the gospel lesson that was appointed to be read for this week. But it's even worse. <laughs> it's the Sermon on the Mount. And boy, talk about stepping on toes. If you read that, your toes will get stepped on big time, as mine always are when I read that. So uh, we're stuck with it. We're going to. See what we can find that Paul says in this. Turns out it does relate to a problem that we're facing right now uh, in our own world. Basically what Paul says is you Corinthians are acting like a bunch of spoiled brats. So let's get some things straight. You need to grow up. Division and arguments are from this world and not from God. Uh, Would any of you doubt that we are living in a divided world, a divided country today? Listen to what the politicians are saying about people on the other side. 
Or if you really want a dose of it, go read a news story and then read the comments that come at the bottom of the story online. Division, 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 hatred, ugly things being said back and forth. We live in a divided world and a divided country. And that is the spirit of the world, Paul says. Now, some of you have heard that the denomination to which we belong is also divided. I thank God that our local church here, I don't believe, is there's no division in this church that I'm aware of. And I thank God for that. We love each other and we care for each other. But the denomination of which we are a part is struggling. It's struggling. And it is probably going to divide uh, as denominations do from time to time and churches do. That is the spirit of the world. It's a spirit of competition, but not the healthy competition that comes from two sports teams that play with one another, but who follow the rules and are fair. It's a competition which wishes the worst for the other side. It's like the team that uh, wants to win, even if it means the only way they win is that the opposing team's quarterback breaks his leg on the first play. That's not a good way to win. That's not a good thing to wish for. And yet... This is where the scripture condemns me because I find it very easy to be happy when someone from the other side falls into misfortune, even if it's a notorious sin. The Spirit of God has to constantly remind me that I am called upon to love my neighbor as myself, even my enemies, and also that love does not rejoice in iniquity. When I hear that Senator so-and-so or Reverend so-and-so has found to be cheating on his taxes or something like that, that aha arises in me. And I begin to say, ah, he got what is coming to him. Oh, he got what he deserved. But I believe that those kind of thoughts have to be brought under the mind of Christ. Do any of you have that same problem? Is it just me? We live in a divided world and that, that division... Is from the spirit of this world. It's not from Christ. Those who follow the spirit of this world, says Paul, are childish. And they need to grow up into Christ. He talks about the foundation. There could be no other foundation for our faith than Christ alone. He's the only one. But we build upon that foundation just as Paul built upon it. Some build worthily and some unworthily. And it's a very sad part of the history of the Christian church that there have always been divisions. We hope that this letter from Paul uh, worked its intended effect and that those who were supporting Paul and those who were supporting Apollos got together and said, yes, these men are both from God. They're here to help us. And so let's put aside uh, all of this fighting and squabbling and, uh, and come together. But we know whatever happened in the Corinthian church, that that spirit of division has continued throughout church history. And so other splits came about. Now, some of the divisions in the church are not the result of unworthy or bad things. Some of them are the result of things as simple as language. The church early on developed between the Roman church and the Greek church, that is the, the Latin speaking church and the Greek speaking church. And so about a thousand years ago, uh, the, church is, the church divided mainly along those lines. And so we have today what we call the Orthodox Church, sometimes called the Greek Orthodox, and it's all of its branches. 
And then we have the Roman Catholic branches of the church from which most of the Protestant churches are descended. Martin Luther came along 500 years ago. And some say that the Protestant Reformation was the uh, responsible for some of the endless divisions that the church has since fractured into. Indeed, the church has fractured into scores and then up until our present day, literally thousands of denominations. Uh, we forget that the pre-Reformation church also had many diverse and often quarreling groups. But we do have to admit that we Protestants have been experts at church split-itis. We've, we've done more of that than probably any other branch of, of the Christian faith. And by the way, America, because of our religious freedom, which we so cherish, has been probably the very epicenter of this malady, of the breaking and constant splitting of the church into smaller and smaller groups. As we build upon the only foundation, Jesus Christ, some build more worthily and some less worthily. But we're all human and none of us is without fault. As a result, there is today, I believe, no one pure church, no one true church which has all the truth and gets everything right. By the way, if I ever find such a church, the last thing I want to do is join it. Because as soon as I join, it will no longer be a, pre a pure church. I will bring to it my own misconceptions, my own erroneous ideas, my own wrong behaviors, and yes, my own sins. If a skeptic asks you, what's wrong with the church? I don't know what you can say, but I can honestly say, I am. What's wrong with the church? I once heard a Methodist bishop state, it's okay to say that we're the best church, provided we don't say that we're the only church. I'm not so sure about that. I think I would rather say it this way. This is my church. I love it. I hope to make it one among many who are faithful to Christ. But best church or not, we are all part of his body, the church. And that is our hope. Our own founder, John Wesley, was disappointed when he saw his Methodists split from the Church of England. Now, part of that was for a very good reason. The simple reason that we had a little thing called the American Revolution. Uh, someone once referred to the Civil War as that recent unpleasantness. The American Revolution was a bit unpleasant as well. And the Methodists who were descended from an English preacher and were in fact members of the Church of England, found themselves in a country that was separating itself from England. And so they had to choose which way they would go. And so the American Methodists split from the Church of England. Had it not been for that little unpleasantness called the American Revolution, we might all still be members of the Anglican Church. And yet God used even that split to build both churches and certainly to make the American Methodists into one of the most dynamic churches of a century and a half ago. But followers of the Wesley brothers divided again and again. Some of those splits were understandable. They were the result of linguistic issues. For example, the German Methodists uh, had a different organization from the, from the English-speaking Methodists. But some of these splits were the result of ugly and evil, even sinful disagreements over things like race. In 1786, a Methodist church in Philadelphia 
voted that all black members would henceforth have to sit only in the balcony. This led to a split in that church. And from that split came what was known as the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, which today still exists. They've changed their name to the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. There were a number of splits that took place over issues like that. Probably the most serious one was the one that led to the division of the Methodist Church in America into two denominations, the so-called Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. By the way, that word Episcopal simply means we have bishops. Did you know we are an Episcopal Church? We don't call ourselves that, but as long as we have bishops, we are an Episcopal Church. And it used to be that was part of our official name, but it's not anymore. Uh, but this was a terrible and, 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 and serious breach that took place about 20 years before the American Civil War. There were a number of Methodist preachers and evangelists who wanted to reach the slaves in the South. And so they said, we know that the Methodist Church has always taught against slavery. That's something we've had a very strong stand against, that slavery is evil. But we think we need to change that because... We cannot reach these slaves uh, unless we do away with that belief. Now, that seems rather strange, but think about it. If you're a preacher, you want to go to preach to a hundred slaves on a plantation or a thousand. You don't do that without the permission of their owner. And so you go to their owner and you say, uh, I'd like to hold a revival service among your slaves. And he says, oh, speaking of slaves, what do you think about slavery? Oh, well, our church teaches that slavery is wrong. Well, see you around. It wouldn't work, would it? And so, uh, well-intentioned as they were, these, these evangelists began to say that we should change our stance uh, on the issue of slavery. It came to a head when a Methodist bishop insisted on keeping his two slaves, one who he had, he had bought, the other his wife had inherited. Other pastors and bishops uh, joined him in defying what the church had always taught, which is that slavery is wrong. And so the Methodists split into two denominations, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And that split or in those two denominations lasted, by the way, until 1939. A year later, in 1940, I was baptized in a church in Maryville, Tennessee, that was part of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Right across the street from my church was a Methodist Episcopal Church South. Of course, now they had come together since a year before to form uh, the same one united denomination. But we were still quite suspicious of those guys. By the way, one thing very weird about that was that the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church South, uh, their building was located on the north side of Main Street, and ours was on the south side, so it caused a little bit of confusion. Uh, I did overcome my prejudice against them long enough to join their Boy Scout troop because that's where some of my buddies were, uh, were attending. And so Methodist churches indeed have a long history of, uh, of, of supporting Boy Scouts. And so now, as some of you have heard in the news, we found ourselves in a denomination that is likely going to split yet again. Our pastor mentioned that uh, several weeks ago, that the news was acting as if it had already happened, and it certainly has not. Uh, 
But it's interesting that the circumstances that lead are leading to that split are have remarkable parallels to those that split our church a century and a half ago. On the one side are those who believe that to minister to a formerly marginalized group of people, we must relax the moral standards that have long been part of our beliefs and practice. On the other side are those who believe that those standards are from God and must be maintained. And each side believes that they and they alone are on the side of the angels. Decades of trying to bring these two sides together to agreement has failed. And so it's become clear that the most gracious and commonsensical thing to do is to stop beating up each other and uh, go our separate ways. So that each of these two groups in their own way can devote themselves to making disciples for the transformation of the world, which is our stated goal. So in May of this year, a decision will be made by our denomination's governing bodies as to how this will happen. And it is certainly our duty to pray that the decisions that are made there uh, will be what are best for all of us. There are reasons for hope based on recent decisions and discussions that our denomination will achieve this separation without the rancor and, yes, even hate that's been part of our past discussions. And we pray that fighting can be replaced by mutual respect and even while we continue to believe uh, as we think the scripture requires us to do and our love for lost sinners. I believe that we need to listen again to the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. I believe that what he said to them nearly 2,000 years ago still applies. Toward the end of today's scripture reading, Paul writes, Everything belongs to you. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, the things which are now and the things which are to come, everything is yours. For you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Did you hear that? Everything belongs to you. What does that mean for us as Christians? Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary and very effective evangelist in India during the middle of the last century. His great genius was the way in which he interacted with and influenced the non-Christian leaders of India because of the respect that he showed them while never compromising his Christian witness. He was even a close personal friend of Mahatma Gandhi. I heard him preach on this very passage many years ago, and I've never forgotten what he said. I will quote and paraphrase a few of his comments on this statement. Everything belongs to you. Drawing from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 3, Stanley Jones argued that Christians have both liberty and law. They have the liberty to claim all good things that God offers, so long as they remain in Christ, that is the law. So Jones explained, all great religious teachers are yours. Here, a gospel offers intellectual and spiritual liberty. Provided we remember whose we are, we are free to take from all religious teachers whatever light and truth they have discovered and realized. Christians are both the most narrow and the broadest of people. We are narrow because we follow the narrow way and we strive to enter in through the narrow gate. That gate and that way are faith in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That salvation both delivers us from the punishment of our sins and gives us the power to overcome them, something which no other religion does. 
But we are also the broadest of people because the whole world belongs to us. We can find the good in any person or any group because of our secure foundation in Christ. We have no fear that the good we find in another person or group shall threaten the supreme good that we know in Jesus. For all that is good is from him. It is because we are secure in Christ that we can be open to all that is good wherever it is found. It is not only to us that Christ has revealed truth. His spirit has long been active in all the world. And so, in the context of India, where Stanley Jones worked for 50 years, he says, We can admire the Hindus for their unwavering belief in karma, the teaching that our actions have consequences in both this life and the next. But we long for them to know that Jesus took all of our bad karma to the cross and there canceled the debt we owed and exchanged it for his good karma if we will but receive it. We can admire the Muslims for their uncompromising belief in one God and their strong commitment to prayer, even while we are sad, that they do not see that that one God exists in three persons and that prayer through Jesus opens heaven's door for all mankind, something Muhammad never did or ever claimed to do. We can admire the Buddhists for their understanding that to desire what this world offers can only lead to sorrow. Yet we hope to show them that when this world passes away and all of its desires, those who do the will of God will find eternal joy. We can admire the secularists for their commitment to knowledge and the application of that knowledge to human betterment. But we long for them to see that it is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and who made us for fellowship with himself. Our confidence in Jesus and in the witness of the Holy Spirit to the whole world lets us see the good even in the religions most different from our own. Surely then we can celebrate the good in those of our own denomination with whom we disagree, even as we prepare to separate from them. We can respect the heartfelt goals of our fellow Christians who honestly want to open the doors of the church to any and all, regardless of lifestyle, whether it was chosen freely or dictated by genes or life traumas. We can also honor those who truly thirst after righteousness and so want to keep God's laws, even when those laws are offensive to our modern culture and go against the direction that our world seems to be moving. We can love even those who are hateful and disagreeable and who think that only they have it right. We receive all of them for Jesus loves them all. But we cannot stop there. We long for all of them and for ourselves to hear Christ's words, go and sin no more. The church must never be a place where we celebrate and nurture our sins. Rather, it is a place where we repent of them and are cleansed. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and of eating with them. He visited the homes of dishonest tax collectors, cheats and prostitutes. He also ate with the self-righteous Pharisees. He loved them all just as they were. But after receiving that love, they could not stay as they were. Their lives were forever transformed. And this is what we pray for ourselves and for our church and for all the world. Amen.